Please have a seat. Uh, I would just uh, invite you to please pray for our landlords as they figure out what they're going to do with the flood in the basement and do whatever they need to do to deal with insurance companies on that. Um, this is one of those times it's really lovely to be renting. Uh, so, so this morning, I want to tell three stories and make three observations. Is that all right? You guys good with that? I know you're planning on something else this morning, but let's see what we can do. Uh, the, two of the stories are from 3,000 years ago. One of them is from 1,000 years ago, and the observations are for right now. All right? So I want to tell a story about Sammy. I'm going to tell a story about Jerry and Ray. I'm going to tell a story about Mike and Leo. These are not stories from the old neighborhood. Two of them are from the Bible and one's from church history. So the first one is if you open up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel, as you will recall, is basically the last of the judges. And uh, Samuel was a, a prophet. His, his time uh, leading Israel kind of concluded the, the area, era of the judges. And uh, Samuel was a, a terrific, terrific guy, but his kids not so much. And so we read uh, in, in chapter 8 when, that when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the second was Abiyah, that they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. These are not the kind of guys that you want to have as your leaders, but that's what they ended up with. And so all the elders of Israel, God's people, gathered together. They came to Sammy at Ramah, and they said to him, you're old, which is probably not the way to begin a conversation if you have something difficult to say to somebody. But they said, Sammy, you're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways, so please now appoint a king to lead us, just like all the nations around us have. And when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And the reason it displeased Samuel is because Samuel knew that God had said in, in, his, in his law, really, you don't want to have a king, first of all. I'm, I, I mean, you think about it. Like, what does a king do? I'll ask the edge kids. What, what does a king do for you? How, what, do you what do you expect from a king? I'm, I'm asking the edge kids. The rest of you pipe down. Okay, a king might boss you around. What, what else? What, what good things would a king do for you? Sorry, you're Canadian. You have to speak up. But. King could make rules, could yeah, could govern you, make laws that enable things to work out. What else would a king do? Why would you want to have a king? Okay, let's say you have a bunch of neighbors that want to come in and take your stuff. What could a king do for you in that kind of situation? He could fight for you. Yeah, he could enforce the laws. He could go into battle for you. He could protect you. He could make agreements with other people like, okay, we won't take your stuff if you don't take our stuff. Uh, you know, the king can kind of embody what a nation is too, right? So the reason you have the kings with all the bling, you know, and they have the fancy robes and the gold crown and all the jewels and stuff is not just a style statement. It's, it's a way of saying on behalf of the whole nation, look how strong and how wealthy and powerful and awesome we are. Right? And so even if you can't have that stuff, you can still be proud that you're part of a country, a nation that has that stuff and whose king can go around like that. And God's saying, look, all the good things that you'd want a king to do, to take care of you, 
to set rules, to, to embody who you want to be. All those things I can do for you, actually. And I can do better than any other king, because the problem is when you get a king, kings also like doing bad things, right? The kings also like raising big armies, and those are expensive. So the kings have to collect a lot of money in taxes, and they have to have massive programs. They have to have all of these people that have to run things for them. Uh, and, and the kings also tend to get into the wrong kinds of relationships with people around them. And so uh, there are a lot of reasons you don't want to have a king. And so Samuel knew our people are, not, are better off without having a king. And so when the people said, hey, we want a king, Samuel said, ah, so he went and he prayed to God. And the Lord said, look, here's the deal. Don't take it personally, Sam. They're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I mean, they're rejecting your sons because they're bozos, but they're really not rejecting you. They've rejected me as their king. I'm supposed to be their king, and they're not doing it. And, you know, here's the thing. This is, this is the way they've done it. This is, this is the pattern. They did it from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. They've been unfaithful to me. They've gone and chased after other gods. And, and you know what? You, Sammy, you're getting a little taste of what it's like to be me. So, here's the thing. I want you to listen to them, but warn them solemnly and make sure they know what's going to happen. Make sure they know what the king who reigns over them is going to do. Let, let them know what they're getting into. So Samuel told all the words of, of Yahweh to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, look, this is what the king who rules over you is going to do. He's going to take your sons. He's going to make them serve with his chariots and horses. He's going to make them run in front of his chariots. He's going to make some of them commanders of thousands, some commanders of fifties. He's going to make others of them plow his ground and reap his harvest. And he's going to take others and have them making weapons of war and equipment for his chariot. So he's basically going to take all these people who could be doing work for your families and he's going to have them work for him. He's going to take your daughters and instead of having them take care of things in your family, he's going to have them take care of his. He's going to make them be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he's going to take the best of your fields and your vineyards, best of your olive groves, and he is going to give that stuff some of it, the produce, some of the actual fields he's going to give to his people. He's going to take a tenth of all of your grain and of your vintage, and he's going to give it to his bureaucrats, your men servants, your maid servants, the best of your cattle and donkeys. He's going to take for his own use. This is what you're going to get into if you want to have a king. And he's going to take a tenth of your flocks. You yourselves ultimately are going to become his slaves. And on that day, so when all this happens, you are going to cry out for relief from the king that you've chosen. But who are you going to cry to? Because the idea was God was supposed to be your king. But if you reject him as king and you say, no, I want to have one of these kings like everybody else has, you cry out to God, he's going to say, hey, you said you wanted to move on. You said you wanted your own king, and he won't answer you in that day. Naturally, the people refused to listen to him. No, no, we want a king over us. We want a king just like everybody else. We want to be like everybody else with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all that the people said, he went and repeated it before Yahweh, and Yahweh answered, all right, listen to him and give him a king. So he did. 
It's been a little over 3,000 years ago that this happened. And the short version of what happens after this is Samuel anoints Saul to be king. Saul is succeeded by David. David is succeeded by Solomon. And sure enough, by the end of Solomon's reign, when he dies, and he's getting ready to pass off uh, the kingdom to his son Rehoboam, and we'll call him Ray. you have, guess what? A massive bureaucratic apparatus. You have huge, painful, oppressive taxation in the, in the land to support the massive armies and the huge building projects that Solomon did. You also have Solomon with all of these crazy arrangements with the nations around him, part of which involved him marrying all the daughters of these surrounding kings. And then you have a son, Rehoboam, who has been born to think that this is perfectly normal. Right? Remember, David started out as a shepherd. Right? In fact, he kept having to dodge Saul's spears as he was growing up. But then his son Solomon grew up in the palace. And now the third generation, Ray, is accustomed to this kind of treatment. The problem is, as we go ahead, if you flip ahead to 1 Kings in chapter 12, what's happened is that while people were willing to do this for Solomon, they were not going to put up with this from Ray. And so you have the people in the northern part of the country coming up to him, and uh, Jeroboam, Jerry, was their, their spokesman, their leader, Jerry goes up, he goes to talk to Ray, and says, hey, listen, Ray, your father, your dad, Solomon, Solly, he put a heavy yoke on us, right? I mean, I think you know we're, how, how much we're being taxed, how many of our children are being conscripted, how much of our land is being taken. This is, this is too much. So we want you to lighten the, the load, lighten the harsh labor, lighten the heavy yoke that he put on us. And, and we'll serve you. And, we, you know, we, we can get along. We can make this work. We will be, you know, we'll be together. We'll be under you. You can be our king. We can make this work. But it, it's really been too much. Ray says, all right, go away for three days and then come back. So he, the people go away, and Ray consults the elders who had served his father. And he says, all right, so what do you think? They said, you know what? <clears throat> You're kind of in a honeymoon period, Ray. You, you, you just got installed as king, and if you start out on a good note, if you do a solid by these people when you're starting, then I think they're always going to be on your side. You know? So if you, if you can, if you can I mean, what they're asking is not unreasonable, if you can give them what they're asking, I think you're going to be okay. And then Ray also, not only did he ask, uh, talk to the elders who had advised his father, who else do you think he might have talked to? I mean, let's say you're a young king, and all the old guys say you got to do something. Who else might you think to ask? Ray asked his buddies. Ray asked the guys that he used to go out and cruise with on, on uh, Shabbat evening. After Motzei Shabbos on Saturday, they'd, they'd hop in their chariots and go cruising around the Strip. And, uh, and, and, and Ray consulted them, and he said, what do you think? And they said, hey, Ray. Tell you what, say, yeah, your father put a heavy yoke on us, yeah, guess what, my little thing, finger is thicker than my father's waist, 
You think that was a heavy yoke he laid on you? Just look at what we're going to do. My father, he scourged you with whips. I'm going to scourge you with scorpions, which is physically impossible because if you try to whip somebody with a scorpion, the scorpion's going to fall apart because it has an exoskeleton. But never mind that. So three days later, Jerry comes back to Ray, and, uh, and he answered the people harshly. Ray rejected the advice given him by these old guys who had given his dad good advice, but he followed the advice of his buddies. He said, yeah, guess what? Here's what you got coming. So the king didn't listen to people. This turn of events was from Yahweh to fulfill what Yahweh had said he was going to do. And, and when all Israel saw that the king refused to listen, they answered the king and they said, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's tent? What, what, what are we doing? What are we doing with you? We, we don't need you. So we're going to go back to our own land. We're going to go to our own towns in the north and we're going to have nothing more to do with you. Naturally, you get fighting. Basically, this is a civil war coming out of a tax revolt. And the nation divides. The nation of Israel, God's one holy people, divides into the northern and southern kingdoms. And it stays divided. And you read later on in the prophets talking about how one day God's going to bring his people back together. And that's part of the vision, but... But it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened yet. He split up the nation. The story of Sammy, the story of Jerry and Ray, and now let's get to the story of Mike and Leo, which is a story that we get from the story of church history about a thousand years ago. So after Jesus dies and rises again and he passes off leadership to his followers, they begin to to spread the word about Jesus through the world. And so within the space of just a few hundred years, you find that the church is spread out all over the place. And over time, it, it comes to be that there are some of the leaders in the church in some of these cities that are considered to be especially important, like the, the, the leader in Rome, the bishop of Rome, was important because Rome, of course, was understood to be the city that St. That Peter was at. And and, and uh, you have the, the bishop of, of uh, Alexandria, because that's where the apostle uh, Mark went. And so some of these cities are understood to be really important. Jerusalem, of course, because that's where all this story uh, of Jesus went down. Uh, but as happens, as different people are doing church in different places, they start to do it in different ways. And, and there start to be variations in the way that people celebrate the the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, when they have communion, they'll do it a little different ways. They'll maybe say different prayers. Eventually what develops, of course, is in the East, people are primarily speaking Greek, and in the West, people are primarily speaking Latin. So now you have people speaking different languages. And as they're un- trying to work out their understanding of, of who God is and, and, and who Jesus is and how he works, that, that some of those ideas start to, to get developed in different ways. And so you have people disagreeing. And you also have a problem, and I think we've discussed this before. I know the edge kids can can help with this one. What what's the biggest impediment to peace? You guys remember? Any of you? 
jerks, right? So the problem is, and I'm sure you have never experienced anything like this ever, but you have some people in the church who are jerks. And inevitably, you have some of the people who are jerks ending up in positions of power, because what jerks like more than anything else is being jerky to as many people as they possibly can. No. So, um, and, and part of that happens because you, you get the, the church and, and the state, basically the church and the empire start to end up kind of on the same side with each other. So you have everybody, you think about everybody who's politically ambitious, everybody who wants to be a governor or a president. Uh, if the only way you can have that kind of power is if you become pope, well, you get some very ambitious and you end up getting some very corrupt people in these positions of power to the point where about a thousand years ago, you have the church in the east led primarily by the patriarch of Constantinople, a guy named Michael Cerularius, or Mikey. And then you have, in the West, Pope Leo IX. And Mikey and Leo are not able to get along on a number of things. Partly they can't get along on exactly what words you should say when you say the creed. Remember, when we take communion, we stand up, we say the creed together. They have a little disagreement about a phrase that's in there. They also have some disagreements as to specifics of how you ought to do the things that we do in church. And they have some questions about really who ought to be in charge. In fact, really most of what this was about was whether Mikey or Leo got to tell the other one what to do. And so it got to the point where they basically, kind of like the northern kingdoms, northern kingdom of Israel, said, you know what? I got nothing to do with you. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. And that was known as the Great Schism, or Schism. And you can pronounce it either way. That's adiaphora, whatever you prefer. Don't let anybody tell you that you're ignorant because you do one or the other. It's a question of how you handle the Greek letter. He, which is an aspirant. Anyway, point being, in 1054, you have the Great Schism. And you have the Eastern and Western Church which are split to this day. So in the Eastern churches, you have the Greek Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Serbian Orthodox Church and the Armenian Orthodox Church. And in the West, you have, of course, the Roman Catholic Church and then the groups that came out of that, the Protestant churches. Joe's going to talk about the Reformation next week and then after church. If you would like some extra church history, I'm going to talk about the Anglican Reformation because the Anglicans are kind of Protestant and kind of not. But that division is there to this day. You know, and, and since then, some good things have happened. Back in the 60s, basically, the, the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Pope, uh, they all kind of decided to take back some of the nasty things that they had said about each other for the last thousand years, but, but they're still divided. And still, the Pope is not willing to let the Patriarch of Constantinople tell him what to do, and vice versa. So I want to make three observations based on these three stories, two from the Bible one from the history of the church. The first is that sometimes God will let us have it our way. You kids are too young to remember the old Burger King slogan, have it your way at Burger King now. You guys remember that? You can probably sing it. So it used to be the deal, Burger King, okay, so it used to be when you went to McDonald's, they basically took a burger out of the, out of the cabinet and gave it to you. They didn't have somebody in the back mysteriously making it. It used to be actually fast, fast food. 
And Burger King's thing was, no, we're going to make it fresh exactly as you want it. And so you may have to wait a little longer, but you're going to get it exactly. So you want extra pickles, extra lettuce. Special orders don't upset us. You remember that? Okay. And sometimes God can be like Burger King and say to us, you know what? Have it your way. If you really insist on doing things the way you want to do them instead of the way that I'm telling you is good for you, I'm going to give you the freedom to choose that. Now, God warns us, just as he warned Israel, that things aren't going to go very well for you if you do that, because he knows us and he loves us, and he set things up so that they're for our best. But if we insist that we know what's best and that we really don't trust God to say, to, to, to know what's best for us, and we're going to do things our way, God will sometimes let us do that. And so the second observation is that when God lets us have it our way and when we insist on having it our way, doing things our way has consequences. And doing things our way often has very bad consequences for us, for people we care about, for the world we're living in. Doing things our way has consequences to God. We can hurt God when we reject him. As God said to, the, to Samuel, he's like, Sam, when, when they're doing things their way and not the way I told them, they're rejecting me. When we sin, when we say, God, I, no, I don't really trust that you want what's best for me and I'm going to do things the way I want to do them, we're telling God, screw you, I'm going to do it my way. And so when God lets us have our way and when things our way lead to the consequences they lead to. Here's my third observation. God will work with us in the situation that we have put ourselves in. God will deal with us in the bed that we have made and that we have to lie in it. Sometimes if the only place we're going to meet God is when we get to the end of our rope, God will let us get there. But he's not always going to deal with that and work with us by putting things back the way they used to be. So, I'm thinking about the classic example of Junior Asparagus and his dad's Art Bugatti bowling plate. You guys remember that one from the VeggieTales episode? Maybe they're watching it in the next room right now. You know, Junior gets down the plate to show it to his friend, which he's not supposed to do, and naturally he drops the plate and it's broken. And so, his dad loves him, even though he's got a broken plate, but he's got a broken plate. The, the plate doesn't magically get put back together. And often when we do our things our way and they have those consequences, then God will work with us in that situation. But he works with us in that situation. And he doesn't always magically put things back the way they were before we screwed them up. I think God's preference would be that his church had remained united, that Mikey and Leo had figured out a way to get along. But we insisted on doing things the way we wanted to do them. And as a result, we have a church that's divided between East and West. And God has been gracious and loving and merciful, and he has borne fruit in the churches of the East and of the West, despite us. But that's the way it goes with us, too. And we have to always remember when we fail, which we do, 
And when we turn to God and ask Him to forgive us and to help us to live in a way that pleases Him, to get us out of the jams that we've gotten ourselves into, that doesn't necessarily mean that He's going to set things back just the way they were before we messed them up. But what it does mean, and this is the most important thing, is that He's never going to say to us, well, you made your bed, now you lie in it. What He says is, you made your bed, and I'm going to lie in it with you. God promises to be with us, even as we have offended Him, even as we have let Him down, even as we have failed. When we turn to Him, He's always going to be with us. I think that's pretty good news. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we confess that we let you down. We choose to go our way. We say that we believe in you and we love you and that you are our Lord, and then we go and do things the way we want to do them. We are so grateful that you forgive us our sin and that you don't just leave us to suffer, but that even as we deal with the consequences of the actions that we've taken, that you are with us that you come and you love us even as we have offended you. And you help us to live in a way that honors you, in a way that enables us to live well with the people around us in this world you put us in, in a way that enables us to deal with the reality of knowing that we have failed you and knowing you love us anyway. Pray that, Lord, when we fail, that we would be quick to turn to you to ask for your forgiveness and your mercy. And we know that you will be merciful to come alongside us and to be with us. We give you all the honor and glory this morning.